Hi, this is Alex Roman, Managing Editor for Metro Magazine, and welcome to Metrospectives, a podcast about public transportation, the private motor coach industry, and all things mobility. My guest today is transit evangelist Paul Comfort, who discusses his upcoming children's book about public transit, as well as the state of the industry today, the need for more emergency funding, and much more. Now, here's my chat with Paul. So joining me, uh, my first, second time guest, uh, Paul Comfort, is joining me today on the podcast. Paul, welcome. Thanks, brother. Well, so so last time, I think we left uh, a lot of meat on the bone, uh, so, so to speak. <laughs> you had, had kind of mentioned, it was almost in passing, that you were putting together a children's book. I know that children's book is set to come out in about a month or so. Um, can you talk a little bit about the book and, and kind of where the idea came from? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me on again as your uh, as your return guest. Uh, as you know, I love podcasts. So, um, and yours have been fascinating. The ones you've been doing so far, by the way, great, great show. So, um, you know, my book, The Future of Public Transportation, came out March first, and it's the book that you know went to number one on Amazon. Has forty different contributors to it, and it came out right before COVID nineteen hit. You know, the pandemic hit, and so uh, I'd been doing a lot of traveling. Uh, I was on the road maybe three or four weeks a month visiting folks for my podcast, Transit Unplugged, or for my company, Trapeze, or uh, you know, attending conferences, et cetera. And suddenly all of that, as you know, for everyone, stopped. And so I'd be working uh, really from home uh, for the last five months. And I'd always had it in my mind, because we have my wife and I have been married over 30 years. We have six children. We have five grandkids and another one on the way. And I've, I've, I wanted to share with my kids, and I have taken them with me to work, et cetera, over the years but I wanted to have something to kind of talk to our children about public transportation, you know? And, it's, and so this five month period really gave me the opportunity to do that and to focus on it. So I actually uh, kind of crowdsourced the book, so to speak. So I had the idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of uh, do the past, the present and the future of public transportation with pictures, like a picture book for kids, not a coloring book. Although I ended up putting one page up front where a kid can color a bus, however they want to color. I thought that'd be cool to add to it. Uh, but I wanted like a cartoon style book and I you know, went to bookstores and saw there's nothing else that I could find on the market like this where you know, somebody like you or I who work in the transit industry can share with our kids. This is what mommy does. This is what daddy does you know, for a living. I work on these buses. I help people you know, get to their jobs and get to doctors and visits, et cetera. And, uh, but I also wanted to, uh, I'm a history major, uh, so I'm always interested in the history of things and do a lot of reading in history. And so I wanted to share kind of like how public transportation in history over the last 200 years has been such an integral part of America and of the major cities around the world. And so I put on LinkedIn, hey, I want to write a kid's book. Um, I'd like to have a good illustrator, somebody who wants to help me illustrate the book, Um, you know, reach out and contact me. And so one guy did from Holland and it turned out he was too busy to do it. And then another guy did from India, a guy named Sudeep KP. And uh, turned out great. He's not a, you know, um, he is, uh, he has another job. He's not a full-time artist, but he's an amazing artist. And so we spent the last five months collaborating on this book. I did, I did a storyboard for him. I went back and researched and picked out key points in history that I thought were important for public transportation. So, you know, uh, the first one, obviously, and me being, having, you know, worked in Baltimore as the CEO of the MTA was about the B&O Railroad. That's really where it all got started in 1830. It was a magical year in public transportation when trains got started and 
I wanted to talk about the Tom Thumb Railroad. You know, everybody's into Thomas the Train. Uh, kids were a few years ago. That was all the hot trend. And so people may not realize that, you know, the very first steam locomotive was the Tom Thumb Railroad. And then, um, so I put a little story about it. And, and I asked, you know, lots of kids, my kids, hey, what would you like to see in a book? And my daughter, Melissa, said, Dad, when I was younger, she's 21 now, but she said, I always liked books that had like little fun facts, pop-up bubbles, or, or uh, did you know things? Uh, and so I said, that's a great idea. I'll put that in the book too. So friends, I'll just read you the first page. It says 1830 was a magical year for public transportation as the B&O Railroad got started in Baltimore, Maryland for passengers. And then there's a nice colorful picture on the first page where it shows, you know, the Tom Thumb Railroad racing a horse with people on it. And then the fun fact bubble is the very first steam locomotive was a Tom Thumb steam train, which raced a horse, but lost when it broke down. I mean, we can all relate to that, especially those of us who work in the transit industry. <laughs> we still have that issue now and then. And then it just goes through and it talks about, you know, um, omnibuses and steam trains and, you know, the underground in London got started in 1863. It's the world's oldest subway. I showed it to Andy Byford the other day, uh, who was CEO of London uh, right. Transport, Transport for London. He loved it. He said, yeah, I know right where that's at, you know. And then, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad, the cable cars. And I did research and, uh, and found out all kinds of fun things. Like, you know, the thing about the cable car is cable cars don't have an engine. They, you know, they go up these big hills in San Francisco, and there really are cables under the ground, and the cable cars have big clamps that clamp onto them. And there's a big winding wheel at the end of the street in the barn that pulls those vehicles back and forth. So then it goes through the current age and little fun facts and stories. And then at the end, it goes kind of into the future where we talk about, you know, maglev and then hyperloop. And then finally, you know, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So it's got pictures of children riding. And I wanted it to be something where they could see themselves on it, not only because we want our children to feel comfortable riding public transit, of course, with their parents if they're young, uh, but also I wanted to kind of capture their imagination and make them consider maybe a career in public transportation. You know, as a 13, 14 year old looking at this, they may think, you know, hey, you know, public transportation is just about buses and trains. I don't want to be a bus driver. Or I don't, I'm not really mechanically inclined. I don't want to be a mechanic. But there's so many cool things about what's happening in the future. You know, I've got satellites and all kinds of things. They're how it teaches us, you know, GPS and all. So the concept is to grab them while they're young, you know, and share with them, hey, this could be a cool thing to do with your life. I just today interviewed uh, for my podcast, a guy named Jerome Horn, who mm -hmm. is, uh, is at Indigo. And he's one of this year's top 40 under 40 guys. And um, he talked to me about how even as a kid, he was very interested in public transportation. And he wrote a letter to the Baltimore MTA CEO at the time, whose uh, <laughs> name was Freeland, who's Ron Freeland. He's a good friend of mine, a great guy. And uh, Ron took the time to write him back and to, you know, encourage him. He was probably 11 years old or something like that and say, you know, this, he told him he wanted to be a CEO and like to take his job one day in Baltimore, you know, and, <laughs> and Ron took the time to write him back and talk to him. But he said that really captured his imagination and made him want to get involved in public transportation. So that's what I'm trying to do with the book. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, you know, I was thinking about kind of my earliest experience with, with public transit. I, I remember probably showing my age a little bit, um, the uh, gas shortage and, and taking the bus yeah. to, uh, to the market and to my grandparents with my mom. Um, you know, do you, do you kind of have like a first memory of, of transit when, when you're a kid using it and, 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 you know, what your experience was like? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, for every kid, I mean, I know we don't consider this public transportation, but school buses are really their first exposure to bus transportation. And I actually, 
after I got some initial feedback, I did, I had not included school buses in the book, uh, but I had a bunch of people tell me, Hey, I mean, it's for kids. It's the first bus. Most of them are, you know, probably going to ride right. now in cities like Baltimore, where I used to run the transit system, you know, the transit system actually provided the school bus transportation for middle schoolers and high schoolers. We transported 26,000 kids a day, but for most kids, they ride the school bus. And so that was probably, you know, the socialization with other people, the fun, getting someplace together. That was probably my first experience kind of riding a bus. And then of course we did, um, we did some cool trips on commuter buses where we where you know, a lot of people don't know how all this stuff works, but basically private motor coach companies, uh, you know, run, you know, Hey, take a trip to New York city on our bus, you know, for $29 or whatever. And that's their weekend work or we take you to see the fall foliage. But then during the week, a lot of them have contracts with transit agencies to run commuter transportation in the cities. So I had ridden on some of those as well. And I got to be honest with you, one of, the, one of the coolest things that captured my imagination for transportation early on was riding the train, uh, taking, a, taking the subway in Washington, D.C., uh, down to see the monuments and things like that. That just fascinated me. I'm on a real train. You know, I remember saying, I'm on a real train. And I've always been fascinated by trains. And I, you know, I just took my kids up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania the last two years around Christmas time when they do, you know, Christmas caroling and hot chocolate and all that stuff on the trains. And you ride an old fashioned, you know, steam train and you go up the track about a half hour and then you come back. And it's just a great experience uh, for children to hear the clackety clack on the track and, you know, see the, the woodwork on the vehicles and the, the veneers and, you know, meet the conductor and all that stuff. And so uh, I think if we capture children's imagination early on, which is what this book attempts to do, and it's a chance for you to have your kids sit next to you and say, you know, walk through it. It's only 30 pages long. It's a, it's a standard children's book length. Uh, you know, you can probably read through it in 15 minutes with them, with commentary even. And um, I'm also hoping to get it translated. Um, we're going to have it translated into Hindi for India uh, and, and Spanish, definitely. I've got uh, somebody lined up. But, you know, if people listening to this podcast, if you speak French or, or German or some other language and you want to help me out and, and translate the book, it's not that many words, uh, we'll, we'll give you, you know, credit in the book in the next version that comes out in the German version or the Italian version. I'd like to use this opportunity to spread it throughout the world. I mean, I've talked to um, Mohammed Benghazi, the head of UITP International. He's actually got a copy of the book, a preview, and other, and other folks around the world are very interested in using this book as a way to introduce young people uh, to public transportation. To be honest with you, especially in this post-pandemic age, right, public transit has gotten a bad rap over the last five months. Mm -hmm. uh, and kids have heard that, you know, they've, they've seen the mayor of a city say, oh, stay off public transit, you know, it's a petri dish for germs and all this nonsense. And, um, you know, while I know there is some chance of spreading on the bus, just like there's anywhere else, I mean, people are in, you know, grocery stores and Walmarts all the time together for long periods of time. And so I think the studies have come out that shown that that's not really as much a concern as people initially thought it was. At least that's the articles I've read. And so I want kids not to be scared of riding public transit. You know, I want them to feel comfortable. And, and say, oh, no, 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 I do want to ride that train. I, I, I want to take the train or I want to take the bus. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's it. And I want to consider it as a, you know, these high tech solutions. Like think about if you were working, man, if I was a young person right now, I'd want to be working in Hyperloop. That's where I'd want to be. I'd want to be working for either, you know, Virgin Hyperloop or, or Elon Musk's Hyperloop, one of them, and be working on all the cool technological stuff happening or doing PR for them or something. I mean, public transportation right now has had a renaissance in the last 10 years. And I think once we get through COVID, it'll be back on. I mean, all the great things happening with mobility as a service, you know, e-paying your fares, um, better planning in downtown areas for cities, curb management, uh, you know, using real-time information, all the, and then, you know, the autonomous vehicles and the 
and the microtransit, all the great innovations happening. I mean, really, public transportation is probably the most innovative place to be right now uh, for a career outside of medicine, maybe. You know, medicine, they're trying to develop a vaccine. But, but outside of medicine, we're having the most technological advancements and the most really awesome futuristic things happening, which will take, I mean, even the vertical takeoff of landing vehicles. I mean, right. it's happening. Uh, you know, you and I had this conversation last time, Alex, I think, but I truly believe that within five years, you will be at the beginning of being able to call an unmanned drone or a, a, a VTOL, a vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, to your house with a push of your phone. You have an account with them, just like you do with Uber. Push a button. It'll come and land in your yard. You'll get in it. It'll fly you, you know, not to the moon, <laughs> but to, uh, to another building at a low altitude and maybe take you downtown, you know, to Washington, D.C. and drop you at a helipad on the roof of the FTA building or something for a visit there. And, right. you know, maybe for like $99 to start with. But you remember that helicopters were big back in the 80s and people were trying to do these things, you know, where you'd, but, but you had to have a group of people. And that eventually is where this is going, I think. I think that, you know, it's already being used right now successfully for like organ transplants uh, being, you know, taken places and important medical packages. And they're already using it in China. They've started it. So, these are kind of the great things that I want to capture the imagination of young people. And so it's available right now on Amazon uh, to start with as a, um, as an ebook. Uh, and then on, it'll be, if you buy, it's only six ninety five. I mean, I'm basically giving it away. Uh, <laughs> it, it costs, it costs almost that to produce it and to have it done, but I, I want to get it out to people. So you download on October 1st, it'll automatically download to your tablet. Uh, you know, a lot of kids use tablets now. My grandkids all have a tablet where they look at books and look at fun things. So, I think it's almost better for some folks to actually have it on a tablet. I still like paper personally, you know, the, and I've got a glossy paperback coming out October 1st, but it'll automatically come on there and then they can always look at it whenever they want to. And, right. uh, it'll, you know, you own it. It's on your, it's on your tablet and then you can walk through it with them and they can, we've, we've hidden a bunch of like what they call Easter eggs in the book, all kinds of little interesting tidbits around the book that we don't talk about. Uh, you know, there's a hot air balloon in one. There's some other interesting thing. I won't give them all away. But we're going to do some things later on after the book comes out fully October 1st and have young people, you know, if you can find the six, you know, um, Easter eggs in the book that are cool, you know, you let us know and we'll send you a prize or something. So going to do some fun stuff like that. Uh, CTAA, other groups, a lot of organizations are wanting to promote the book some and tell young people about it. And then October 1st, the paperback will be out. It's a glossy paperback. And I'd encourage your listeners, if they would, if you want to buy the book, buy it right on the first day, uh, because the more buys we get, the higher it goes in Amazon's ranking. If you get it on the very first day and it can shoot it to become a number one book based on the first day or two together. And that gives it more prominence in their algorithms. So more people will see the book and we'll be able to spread the message to more people. So, um, so anyway, I'm very excited about it. We, so, you know, this pandemic was a, was a global gut punch to transit and it was a letdown for me. I was hoping to do a big, you know, international book tour. I had like a dozen locations set up around the world. Uh, ended up doing other stuff, you know, doing it online. But the silver lining was I got to do this book. I was here and every, every week I'd had a call with my, you know, zoom call with my illustrator. We worked for hours on it every Sunday. Uh, we, it was kind of the day we set Saturday or Sunday we worked on it. And, um, so it turned out to be a good thing. And I hope other folks have had the opportunity to do similarly during the pandemic. You've picked up some kind of project or try to learn a new hobby, or maybe did some exercise more than you normally would do. Try to eat better. I tried. I don't know how well it worked. But, but, <laughs> yeah, that's not working uh, for me right now. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but hopefully we're coming out of this now, but it's been, a, it's been a very valuable five months for me. Yeah, that's great. Um, there's, you know, there's a few other topics I wanted to get to, but 
Um, you know, one of the themes for the September issue that we have coming out um, in, a, in a week or so was, was workforce development and, and you know, being uh, in a management position before. Um, can you talk about maybe, you know, maybe why young people don't see public transit as, you know, like a, a viable professional option for them? Yeah, that's great. It, it is important. We're having what they call a brain drain from our industry. Uh, so I worked in industry for uh, about 30 years in operations and in business development and county government where I oversaw transit. And I can tell you that in the last five years, my generation, so I'm in my 50s and the, um, the, our generation X, everybody was reaching their retirement. A lot of guys and gals my age had been in the business for 30 years and were starting to say, you know what, I'm done. I've got my pension or whatever. Uh, and so, especially in the mechanical world, uh, our mm -hmm. mechanics, a lot of our bus mechanics started retiring in our rail mechanics. We were at the MTA in Baltimore. I mean, it was, we were, it was serious. I actually ended up doing a, um, a pilot program with a group to help recruit uh, ex-cons to come and learn a skill with them. It was, it was um, at, at an automotive place. They would learn, we would actually, we sent all the material to them and they would train them while they were in their last six months of jail. And then they would come out and we would give them, you know, the goal was we would give them more training and then hire them as mechanics. I mean, they paid their debt to society. They didn't have interaction with customers and we needed mechanics. Uh, right. And so um, I think um, I, I, there's, there's several things I think going on. First off, I don't think we have presented the message of public transit in a positive enough way. Uh, and with all the things that I just talked about in the children's book to capture the excitement and interest of children. A lot of folks that I know had got into the transit industry um, you know, they just, what we call fell into it, right? You know, I just right, by fell accident. into it. Yeah, by accident, you know, and, and it wasn't like a career path. Kids want to be a lawyer, a doctor, a nurse, a veterinarian, whatever, but they don't necessarily, so I'd like to make public transportation, and Phil Washington and I have had a number of conversations about this, a career path choice for young people where they think about it like Jerome did, Jerome Horn, and I mentioned at Indigo, as a young person to say, no, this is actually where I want to go. I'm fascinated by it, and I want to learn more. And so, you know, Phil's opening up a school for young people to actually mm -hmm. teach them transportation skills. But there is, uh, a, you know, to use a big word, a cornucopia of different job types in public transportation that are things like human resources, finance, information technology, right, planning, procurement, uh, legal, public relations. There's so many different job functions, safety, uh, that, that young people are just aren't aware of. And so I think we need to do a better job of telling them about that. Uh, government jobs are normally, and most of these agencies are run by, you know, either quasi-government or whatever, are pretty secure jobs, which is a great, you know, path for young people to be in. And also, they normally have decent benefits. Um, a lot of them still have defined pension plans. I know when you're young, you don't think about that. But as you get my age, you start thinking, hey, I'm glad I got a defined pension plan. It's not all in a 401k, subject to the whims of the market. So right. there's, um, there's a lot to be said for it. And to me, the, the best thing we can do for young people, because so many young people are passionate today about causes, you know, they want to clean the environment, they want, uh, they want to help people, uh, they want there to be better equity in our cities and whatever. Public transportation does all that. I mean, right. it's probably the silver bullet for all of that stuff. I mean, if anybody's going to clean the environment, it's freaking public transportation. We're doing zero emission buses, whether they're electric or hydrogen, um, you know, or CNG. That's the new trend. That's the number one thing in my little talk I do about the top 10 ways to future-proof your transit system. Number one, is to invest in zero emission buses. We need to uh, claim, reclaim the high moral ground when it comes to cleanliness. We've been tarnished with this uh, COVID that it, our buses aren't clean and aren't safe in an in a, uh, environmental way of being you know, germs. 
we need to turn the tables on that messaging, I think, and talk about, oh, no, 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 no. One bus replaces 40 vehicles on the road or whatever. And so we actually can, uh, you know, reduce smog and emissions as well as reduce congestion. So that needs to be an angle that we really push with young people. If you want to make a difference in this world, whether it's social justice, whether it's clean the environment, whether it's helping, the, you know, helping people get the jobs or, you know, help, helping mom visit her mother in the nursing home, what, public transportation does all of that. And you can make a real difference in your life um, by coming into this industry. Yeah. Well said. And, and, and I don't know, I, I, I feel like if more people uh, met and listened to Phil Washington talk, they'd probably want to go into transit as well. Yeah, um, exactly. And he's, he's fantastic. Um, you know, last time also, you know, some, something you had men- mentioned in passing that uh, we can take up now is uh, you're the president, I believe, of NADA. Is, is that yes. correct? The, yeah, uh, the North the con- American Transit. Yeah, That's right. all of the contractors and, and the major contractors in the United States have come together. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you guys got together and, um, you know, what you've been doing during this time since, since it, your uh, inception? Sure. Well, I mean, here um, uh, in the 30 years that I spent in operations, half that time was with working with private contractors. I worked for Laidlaw, which got bought by First Transit. I worked for MV Transportation in Washington, D.C., where I was director of operations for uh, the single largest paratransit contract in the country for five years, a $100 million contract, uh, ended up being broken up near the end when they went to a different model. And then um, also worked for Yellow Transportation, Mark Joseph. We sold the company to Connex. Connex became Veolia. Veolia became TransDev, and that's who they are now. And Mark was a CEO there. So I'd worked in this industry for a long time in business development and in management. And um, so, again, once again, you know, the silver lining of COVID. When COVID hit, it obviously... Uh, dramatically reduced ridership. And most folks probably are aware in our industry that these private contractors uh, operate most of the paratransit service in North America. Most transit agencies, you know, have decided that that's such a specialty that they don't really want to get involved in it uh, and they'll just outsource it to private companies. So companies like First Transit, uh, based out of Cincinnati, and TransDev, based out of north of Chicago, and MV, which is American-owned, based out of Dallas, and then newer, newer companies, those are the big three, I call them. They're all billion dollars or more in, in annual uh, income. And then the other companies like Keolis uh, and um, National Express and RATP Dev, uh, they're really big internationally and they've come into the country in the last you know, decade or so or more in some of their cases, and they're making their presence known. So these six big contractors were concerned that the way they get reimbursed is by revenue hour and most of these contracts. And they do some fixed route work as well, but we do the majority of that. And uh, of the paratransit and some fixed route transportation contracting out. It's kind of um, invisible to the, to the average rider because, you know, we don't, they don't wear uniforms that say first transit. They wear uniforms that say the name of the agency usually. Um, but it is contracted out. It's done actually usually at least 20% cheaper than the agency can do it itself. And these companies bring in all this expertise from around the world that they've learned and they can help mid-sized agencies, especially with, you know, purchasing of parts at cheaper rates because they got, you know, big national contracts, and they can bring in expertise for like how to run your autonomous vehicles. I mean, TransDev, I just did a show with Dick Alexander, who is actually chairman of the group of NADA, North American Transit Alliance. They got to deal with Waymo. I don't think people even know that. They've got a thousand drivers driving Waymo vehicles uh, around, the, you know, in the vehicle um, with Google. So anyway, these guys got together and said, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> all this money's coming out of Washington, this CARES Act, is it going to be able to be used to pay for contractors? as well as for the transit agency. So that kind of was the impetus that got the group together. And um, 
you know, I stay in contact with these guys all the time. And, you know, the fact that I'd been in the industry for a long time on their side and understood their side as well as on the public side, then a CEO have a high profile in the industry. Uh, they felt like I'd be a good person to come in and be the first, you know, president slash executive director of the group. And so we kicked it off a few months ago, back in April officially. And since then, our basic goal has been to kind of define the organization, you know, working on our mission statement, our vision and all that stuff. And then um, with lobbyists work on Capitol Hill and with a comms firm, try to get the message out that contracting is important. Hey, don't leave us out when it comes to making sure these funds can be used for contractors to run the transportation as well. And we won. It worked. Uh, we work with FTA. We work with APTA, the American Public Transit Association, and work directly on the Senate uh, and the House side with the leadership. And uh, FTA came out with guidance language, which definitely confirmed that. APTA sent out a letter, as well as the, um, the House chairman and ranking member sent out letters to all the grantees in the country saying, you know, that, that you could use your CARES Act funding for public transit. So now the goal stays on Washington some, but it also goes to, the, to talk about, hey, in this post-COVID era, when places like San Francisco and Denver and other cities are saying, we may, and, and MTA, my, my company just came out and said, we're going to cut, you know, all these routes because we can't afford to operate them anymore. Well, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, maybe you can't afford to operate them under your traditional method where you operate it with, you know, the heavy hand of government or whatever, but why not consider an RFI, request for information, and see if public, if private big contractors can come in maybe you already have a presence in your community through paratransit. Maybe they can run some of these fixed routes as well for 20 or 30% cheaper than what you're running it now, but with the same standards of on-time performance and safety that you have, et cetera, and give the private contractors a chance so that we don't cut all the service to people. I'm very concerned. The news that came out of Baltimore just this week was, you know, when I was there, we set up all these express routes, which were people from the suburbs coming into the city and reverse commute services. They're cutting almost all of them, the express route work. Because, and they want to just focus on the core network, which is fine, but I don't want to forget people in the suburbs. They, they need to get transportation into the city as well. And I know that that is, you know, the need for that is reduced, but to eliminate them entirely, come on, man, to use somebody's phrase that they use in politics lately, you know, come yeah. on, man. So that's the message of NADA. And I'm thrilled to be a part of it because I consider myself a transit evangelist. And I, I really think um, Steve Sawyer, who's the president of Trapeze and Jeff Moore, the guys who are my upline for saying, yeah, Paul, you can keep doing this, you know, um, keep doing it because it help, they're focused, as I am, on helping our industry recover from COVID. And this is one of the ways I think we can do that is to offer opportunities for public transit agencies to not necessarily have to take such dramatic action. These things could be long-term. I mean, this, you know, the New York Times came out with an article recently that talked about a death spiral for transit. I hate to even say that on the show, but right. you, know, you got to face the facts, you know? So if you get less funding, that means you have to cut routes. And if you cut routes, that means you have less riders. And then if you have less riders, you'll have less income. So it keeps, it's like that thing when you go to the beach and you're trying to put your, um, your umbrella in, used to be you had to do it by hand and kind of, now they have these things you can twist to go down into the ground and then you right. put your umbrella in at the beach. Well, this is like that twisty thing that just keeps going down and down and down. And before you know it, I mean, public transit could be dramatically negatively impacted even if ridership comes back to 80% of pre-pandemic levels, uh, it, it may be difficult to serve everyone and because service will have been cut. And so anyway, we can't let that happen. We've got to come up with other solutions. And NADA is helping to offer that for the industry. Kind of like an airline association or a trucking association. It's an industry association. And we're not like taking the place of APTA or CUDA. We're working hand in glove with them, actually, but focused on the contractor's needs. Right. 
Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, under the radar, uh, a lot of those contractors have been doing things where they're feeding, uh, feeding senior citizens and, and helping the community, which is great. Um, you know, also, you, you mentioned uh, kind of economics. And, and, you know, I spoke with Dr. Caver uh, at the Cleveland RTA for, for this issue. And that's a big thing is for them is, is keeping service on the road. And the only way you're going to get people to jobs and keep the economy going is to keep transit going. Um, so I think maybe, you know, maybe my last question for you today is, is you know, where's, the, where's kind of the state of transit right now? And, and, and how do you think that this will continue to play out? Last time we had no answers. You had a lot of great suggestions that were was in a, an issue of our article, of our, uh, of our magazine and online. Um, That's right, yeah. But, but now it's, it's, we're seeing it take place and now there's another road ahead that's gonna happen. Um, right. You know, what, what are your thoughts on how that plays out? So great, great way to end this uh, is talking about what comes next. So um, as you mentioned, I had an article in Metro Magazine in May, I think it was, on, um, on uh, the five long-term implications of coronavirus on public transportation. And then this last month, I wrote an article for Trapeze on their blog site about how to future-proof your transit agency. So I've been talking with, I probably talked to, I don't know, 30 CEOs over the last couple of months about what is your game plan? And uh, so here's what, here's what I think the game plan is for public transit. First off, we need another tranche of money from Washington here in the U.S. Just yesterday, I was talking with Marco D'Angelo, who is the CEO of CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association. And finally, the federal government there has said that they'll basically provide, this is layman's term, but matching funds to the local provinces, which are like our states here in the U.S. So right. the province puts up 10 million, the federal government will put up 10 million, and that'll help the operating costs. So that's great. I'm really happy. Uh, Marco did an amazing job with, with, his, uh, with the leadership of the transit agencies up there to get that done in Ottawa. And but here, we had that one-time $25 billion infusion of funds through the CARES Act, which we're very thankful for. But most big transit agencies, especially, are burning through that very quickly. You know, Washington, New York have put out, you know, these potential doomsday scenarios they're calling in for their transit systems. Some mid-sized agencies that don't rely on sales tax have been able to spread out the, uh, the you know, the, the money a little bit longer. But we do need another tranche of funds from Washington. Uh, the, you know, APTA has put out numbers. Other people have put out numbers. The bill that came out of, I think it was the HEROES Act, or one of the bills that came out of the House had like seven point some billion dollars. But we need one more tranche of money to help us get back on our feet. A lot of, you know, my state of Maryland, just yesterday the governor came out and we're moving to what they call phase three. So things are really opening back up here. And I think that's happening across the country. And I think by the end of the year, if we have a vaccine, uh, which they're saying we may have, and things are doing better, transit will get back on its feet, at least the core services. I think commuter train and commuter bus may take a little bit longer, another six months after that maybe. But we need this, the federal government needs to step up and take the responsibility. They're the ones that led this. They're the ones that required the shutdowns across the country when they first got started, and the states followed suit. And that's where our riders have gone. So they need to step up and help us. We need a new level of federal investment in operating costs for public transit. If we get that, then we won't have to do the end and we can look at creative solutions like including contractors to run some of the fixed route uh, bus service or train service. Then I think we can get through the, the final hurdle uh, of COVID and into 2021. And I think uh, no matter who wins the presidency, uh, hopefully a lot of the politics will die down and we'll be able to get some agreement on how transit needs to be viewed now. And that is transit, I think we've all realized, is more like a public utility than like, let's say, a local golf course. You know, so a local golf course, so I used to run county governments and we had, you know, um, a local golf course that the county ran in both counties. 
and it had to make enough money on its own to operate. Now, the county put in capital dollars for upgrades on the golf course, but the, the, the money you paid to play golf had to pay for the operating costs, 100%. It's called an enterprise fund. And uh, transit has been viewed that way for a long time, that basically, you know, transit needs to pay its own way. We'll throw a few dollars, a few scraps toward it uh, at the federal level, but uh, it really needs to be a local thing and it needs to be covered. Well, it, it, now we realize through the pandemic that, that public transit is a necessity to make our economy turn, uh, for social justice, to make sure people have access to all of life's opportunities, and to clean the environment. And so all of these things coming together at once, I think, has helped uh, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill say, you're right, we need to step up our level of federal investment. And so I think if they'll view us more like a public utility that uh, requires uh, the appropriate amount of, you know, like a, let's say like a highway, right, or like a school, or like another necessary government service that, you, you know, most people, they don't charge people uh, a user fee to um, drive on a road, except for gas. You have to pay a little gas tax, right? Or we don't charge you a separate fee to go into Central Park or a park in your town. These are considered amenities that the government provides to people as a basic level of necessity. And I'm asking that the federal government view public transportation that same way. And uh, I think they will. I really think we're, we've stepped up to a new level of funding. And so I think we're going to be just fine when it comes. And then we have some amazing CEOs in our industry, men and women who are just doing phenomenal things with leadership and you know, new ways of thinking, like Phil Verster in, uh, at Tran, up in, at Metrolinx in Toronto said, you know what, we're going to you know, put up dividers in the trains, we're going to put up stations, uh, sanitation stations in our train stations, and we see that our uh, normal peaks of commuter train service may be flattened a little bit because not as many white-collar workers are going to go into Toronto for a while. But people are going to want to come back for ball games and for the nightlife. And so we're going to increase train service potentially at nights and weekends. So creative solutions of adjusting our service offerings uh, to the demands of the, of the riding public. You know, in other words, you don't sell what people aren't buying, right? So you figure out what they are buying, and then uh, you adjust your service accordingly. And this is a great opportunity for people to adjust their routes, not cut their routes, but adjust their routes, offer brand new ways of partnering with taxi cabs and TNCs and, and um, you know, using their software better to move things to the cloud, or maybe you don't need as many reservationists sitting in the um, pandemic-prone call centers, and instead you can move people to their phone, or they can you know, book their ADA trip on their phone. All these technological innovations that have been sitting there, but people are still stuck in the 1980s in most transit agencies when it comes to their technology. It's time to move into the 2020s, adapt your technology, and adapt what you're doing to where the public wants to be today when it comes from a route perspective. And I think we're, we're set for um, a new future and a better decade in the 2020s. Great. Yeah, uh, I've just uh, this morning, I don't know if you'd seen it, but APTA's uh, Paul Scatellis was asking for $32 billion, uh, in funding. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, you know, fingers crossed the, the, um, the industry can get that boost of money and everything will be, you know, be able to get us through. Um, yes. You know, like, like I said, I, I I believe mobility is, is helping drive economy and, and you know, you agree. And, and I think all of this is going to drive technology and, and we're going to be in a, in a different place, uh, hopefully soon. Absolutely. Well, Paul, Thank thanks you. for your time. I really appreciate it, man. This is uh, great. Uh, if you're listening, buy the book. If you're speak a different language, reach out to Paul. That's right. <laughs> the full title of the book, if you're looking for it, is Public Transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and Beyond. That's great. a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> well thanks again Paul I appreciate it thank you buddy thanks for listening to Metrospectives a podcast from Metro Magazine 
Be sure to check out all the latest industry news at metromagazine.com or follow us on Twitter at MetroMagTweet.